earlier on, it's better to try things from a lot of different categories, from a lot of different brands, and use that experience of trying a lot of different things to help focus you for the later stages of, of the journey. I feel like the default answer is people just throw it on black crock, like that's the answer. But so much of the watch has been considered and thought through in every minute detail to just go with what is the default answer for a manufacturer, to me, it's particularly shameful. But as, as a collector, it, it speaks of a lack of personality and imagination to me. I know that might be aggressive, but it's true. Hello and welcome to the Hairspring Watches podcast with me, Eric Gustafson, and your co-host, Max Braun. It's funny. So we're recording this on Audacity and then we have AirPods in. Max and I aren't in the same room. And my phone connection is horrible in my apartment. So half the time when Max is making a beautiful, very strong point. Uh, he tones out, and then I kind of infer what he says from the first half of the sentence, but it still works. <laughs> We're really piecing it together over here. In so many ways. Um, so, Max, how are you? What's new? <laughs> I'm fine. Um, not really anything new to report. Just uh, excited for an upcoming ski trip on Wednesday. And I'm also making oxtails tonight, which is one of my favorite foods to make. So as, Yum. as soon as we get off here, I'm taking them off and letting them cool down for a minute before diving in. What's what's the watch that you wear while you ski? Um, it's changed uh, over the last couple of years. For a while, I didn't wear one. And then I wore um, my Tudor Pelagos LHD for a little bit. And that was good. It held up. Uh, nicely, but when I'm skiing, I'm you know layered up, obviously, particularly this time of year and in Colorado. Um, so 42 millimeter watch, that's like 15 millimeters in height. See, feels kind of chunky. So um, about a year ago, I got one of the um, Black Bay 58s uh, with the Rowing Blazers logo on the dial. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I did get a chance to wear that while skiing last year, and it was perfect. The the dimensions are uh very svelte so feels feels right at home under a jacket yeah that works perfectly that might be the only watch that we have ever shared i don't think we have another watch that we have a shared ownership experience of um am i right in saying that there must be some where we've overlapped like with at least the reference if not specific examples well, okay, we'll come back and revisit this instead of meandering on the podcast but it feels like there has to be another i'm not sure if there is though i think that might be it yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I haven't. It also sort of depends on how you define own, right? Like some dealers, they don't consider a watch owned, even if it's in their inventory. Yeah, I'm the same way. You know, um, I, I tend to include watches that I've had in inventory as owned watches because I, I you know, I couldn't sit here with a straight face and tell you that I'm not trying on everything that comes in. Of course. Uh, and usually it's on the wrist for a few days before, at least a few days before it goes out the door. So um, th those are very focused time periods for me because as a dealer, you know, obviously it's the financially sensible thing to do to try to get things gone uh, as quickly as possible. And so I know that if I get something good, it's likely only going to be in my possession for at most a week or two. And so I try to use that week or two while it's with me to really study focus, uh, learn about it, take notes about how it wears, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
So I do consider those to be watches that I've owned previously. I know some people might scoff at that, but uh, that's my view. It's a gray area. I mean, what does owned mean? Is it, you know, you could own a watch for one day and then sell it again. So I, I do think it's a gray area. For me, my watches a lot of the times are consigned. And so it becomes a thing where I, I don't want the condition to change whatsoever. So the watch will be photographed and then we'll do some like, you know, lifestyle photography on the wrist or whatever. But then it goes back in the safe. And I, I do spend my time looping it and inspecting it. And, you know, I try and enjoy it as much as I can in that process, but I'm not wearing those watches out ever. They just kind of hang out. So it, it's a slightly different model, you know, Yeah. but, you know, teach their own. All right. So I think we've meandered uh, long enough uh, catching up, but I we have a few topics this evening that I'm really looking forward to. Uh, and speaking of being dealers, I think one of the things that we both see a lot are watch buying mistakes and heartbreak and all the rest of it. And I'm not really sure how we're going to structure this or approach it. There are a lot of topics to cover here, probably infinite. Uh, but I thought we would talk a little bit tonight about watch buying mistakes that aren't related to the condition of the watch itself. So kind of broader philosophy. Uh, and I'm sure at some point we'll come back and revisit condition. But that's such a broad topic and so specific to different areas of watches that I think we'll probably revisit this in coming podcast episodes and make... Um, uh, make more d- deep dives into, you know, uh, the condition of Patek Philippe or condition of Rolex and what that means or various other marks. But I think tonight we're going to talk a little bit about condition or about mistakes that people make in buying that are totally unrelated to condition. Um, and we both have a lot of things that we could say here, uh, including a few rants, which I'm sure we're going to get to. <laughs> but Max, what what what's the first thing that comes to mind to you when I say this? You know, part of this is uh, just experience, right? Like the best way we've we've harped on this in prior episodes, but the best way to really learn about vintage watches, uh, and if not as importantly, then almost as importantly, your taste is to hold them and study them and really spend time with them and be very intentional about uh, you know your the time that you're able to spend with them. Um, because you can study and learn references and dial variations in case manufacturers and features of movements and, you know, how the technology progressed over the years and different things about brand nuances and things like that. But at the end of the day, um, what matters the most is understanding what feels and looks the best when it's on your wrist. Um, and so that's, my segue kind of into the first thing that I would mention with this. Well, one moment, one moment. Before you segue, this this is one of the things that came right to mind for me too, which is when people first get into watches, they spend a lot of time looking at pictures, which you know you just said beautifully, but people also make buying decisions for huge dollar amounts without ever having seen anything that's even comparable or in the same category in person. You can have an idea what a 38 millimeter watch wears like, but various cases are extremely different and, you know, um, various different categories of watches will wear extremely different. So one of the things that I see a lot is people making a buying mistake without ever having seen a similar watch in person, even the category. I want to put that in really quick. Yeah, I mean, that's my that's my first point. Like I was segueing into that point, which is people buy things that they think they will like or things that they think they are supposed to like. Uh, and for one reason or another, they spend the money, they get the watch, it's on their wrist, and it just doesn't hit the way that, you know, something that's right really should. 
Um, and so I, I don't know if we're giving advice, but that that's the number one mistake uh, that I think people make is just auto buying something that they think that they want to have or something that they think they are supposed to have um, without really paying mind to how it might look or wear on their wrist. Supposed to is really the operative word there, which I think speaks to satisfying other people. Supposed to is such a good way to phrase that. It's often buying for the wrong reasons will also fall under the category of um, trying to impress others or trying to make someone smile at a red bar meetup. The watch, when you put it on, should make you happy and you alone. And that's really what matters. Uh, And also, I will, to go broader on this, I just want to say really quickly, you will know. I always find when a watch is right for me, I know. There's just no question in my mind. And if there's even a lagging doubt in your mind when you put on a watch every time, it isn't it at least for me. In my own collecting philosophy, if there's a question in my mind whether I love a watch or not, I don't. And it's never it's never been this thing where I question if I love a watch and then suddenly in five months I question. If I'm questioning, it's always a bad sign. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's always going to be something out there that is perfect. Um, and so the the search really should be for for an example like that, not something where you kind of are pinging back and forth, whether it's right for you. But one thing I wanted to come back on that you mentioned is, uh, you know, like should have definitely is an operative phrase. Um, but I find it's not always like in dealing with collectors in, in particularly newer collectors, it's not always what they think others think that they should have. There's also, and I don't want to call it a fallacy because there are certainly some out there who have built truly world-class collections. But I think people fall into this trap of, you know, I'm going to be bu- buying watches for the next 60 years, and the goal is to amass a collection that will one day be marveled at <laughs> by, by the whole community. And, I mean, it's a, it's a worthy aspiration for sure, and it's very noble. But what that kind of removes as a possibility is is to make mistake like you're not allowing yourself any room to make a mistake if you do that and also usually what i see when people are in that mindset is they kind of back themselves into a particular category so it'll be like i i need to own every whatever execution of rolex mariner that's ever existed and if you so let's say you buy 10 great examples well if you hit 10 that's great but you're nowhere near where you would need to be in order to amass what would truly be considered a world class collection and now are you going to spend your money trying to get the other i'm just making up numbers 90 that you would need uh if that's the case then you're not really allowing yourself to explore other categories Uh, And it's a quick way to get burned out. Um, And you're just sort of robbing yourself of the experience to own uh, other wonderful watches in different segments. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I think I'm I'm reminded of a phrase, which is you don't know what you don't know. And I think at that early stage, what you're really speaking to is someone setting out with a noble intention, but not realizing sort of the scale that's involved or the level of knowledge that's involved. And starting, you know, with a very noble aim to amass a fantastic collection. But I think it's very easy to lose the passion if you take it too seriously too quickly. And a lot of people do. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to become a like the 
the go-to scholar. You don't have to become the the Jeff Stein uh, of every cat of of a particular category. You know, like there have been a lot of trailblazers who have come before who have done great scholarship, um, and you know, you you don't have to write the book uh, on a on a category, right? Like allow yourself the the room and the rope to discover other things and. Um, there, there will be plenty of time later in life to drill down and become very focused if you want to head down that route. But, um, you know, being 31, I work with a lot of buyers and collectors who uh, are a little bit earlier in their journey. And I find that they often get sucked into this hole of just wanting to be hyper-focused. And certainly there are some where, you know, that is the way for them. But um, I find most often that that people get burned out pretty quickly. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think earlier on, it's better to try things from a lot of different categories, from a lot of different brands, and use that experience of trying a lot of different things to help focus you for the later stages of, of the journey. Yeah, yeah, well said. I mean, there are a lot of broad philosophies that you you could cover. I have a I have a few, I have many points I can make here, but one of the things that I wanted to touch on was just the mechanics of the actual buying and what you're speaking to with a collector who really wants to take something seriously and kind of um, have a defined focus. I, I see a lot of the time people like that usually are coming into it from prior money in life. Not always, but you know, most of the time because watches aren't a very expensive hobby. And I, I, there are a lot of mechanics issues with physically buying watches that I see exposing safety risks all the time. Um, and there, there are just many directions I could take this, but I, I, there's one guy in particular who really comes to mind who, who is a character I know who's just the kindest, sweetest guy. Um, and you know, he, he had bought, um, various properties uh, throughout his life that were affiliated with Sotheby's. And because of that, he trusted the name, which I think is is fair to say. I'm not calling out um, any particular names here. You know, I could I could exchange Sotheby's with a Christie's or a Phillips or, or whatever in regard to watches. But he had he had kind of come into that name and had good experience with them in other departments and then got into watches. And when he got into watches, he made a, an auction purchase, uh, which wound up to be kind of not what he had signed up for. Um, and a few things were wrong. And it's, it's just something that I see all the time, which is people who come into this world and then trust auction houses or even Chrono 24 blindly uh, and think that they are somehow devoid of the responsibility of learning if they buy through what is regarded generally as a good institution. I think there is some wisdom to the advice by the dealer, but only to a limited extent. And I, I'm well aware that I'm kind of shooting myself here in the foot by saying that because I am a watch retailer who tries to guard his reputation with his life. But it, it's one of these things where you you just can't really be careful enough in this space because it is, I, I think to go back to an earlier point, you don't know what you don't know. And a lot of dealers and even auction houses don't necessarily know what they don't know. A, a lot of times these things aren't totally nefarious. It's just ignorance and it manifests in a poor buying decision. Yeah, I mean, I think by the dealer uh, always applies. But again, like we usually see these mistakes with folks who are newer to the space. And I think a good rule of thumb is to test the waters with a number of different dealers, auction houses, etc. Um, when you're starting out, right? Because 
if you just go down one path, you're really exposing yourself. Um, and it might, it, you know, it could work out, but uh, you're, you're still exposed and, and taking a risk. As you progress in your journey and buy a little bit and come to know others, uh, particularly collectors, um, it'll become apparent pretty quickly who out there has a strong reputation um, and who is worthy of your trust and it really has your best interests in mind and isn't just trying to make a buck. But those parties don't necessarily make themselves uh, available to you or visible to you. Uh, right off the bat, it may take a little bit of time to find those that you should be working with. So similar to the types of watches that you know you should be pursuing, start wide, gather information, gather opinions from people that you like and trust, and use that to help you narrow who you should be working with. Yeah, I think that's well said. Um, this is a lot of very earnest advice, and I think we could honestly keep going all night with um, you know various anecdotes about people we've encountered who have had buying experiences. Because I think, Max and I, we really do feel for these people. I mean, I've made mistakes before. I, I know you have. It's just, it comes with the territory of this space. But uh, there are also things that just irk me and things that just get on my nerves. And one of those for me is someone who buys a watch, whether it be new or vintage, and never reconsiders the strap that the watch comes on. And I know it sounds pedantic, but I see this all the time. If they buy, someone buys, you know, a watch off a of Christie's auction or, or from somewhere in the gray market or even a brand new watch, and they just take whatever it comes on as the default option. And watches are, I view them as, as small pieces of art. And I always view the strap or the bracelet as the framing to that art. And it always gets on my nerves how little attention, oftentimes even manufacturers, play to the framing of their own artwork. I feel like the default answer is people just throw it on black croc, like that's the answer. But so much of the watch has been considered and thought through in every minute detail to just go with what is the default answer for a manufacturer. To me, it's particularly shameful, but as, as a collector, it, it speaks of a lack of personality and imagination to me. I know that might be aggressive, but it's true. I think straps, and you know, buckles and bracelets are beautiful things to play with and can give your watch an entirely new personality. And it really surprises me how few people play with that. I don't know, Max, if you see this, or maybe it's just the world that I operate in, but people don't, like, if they buy this expensive watch, they feel like um, in the collecting car world, like they're modifying it in some way by putting it on a different strap. Please, people, express some personality. Find something interesting. Yeah, um, I, I think certain uh, sellers, whether it's dealers, auction houses, etc., are, are better at this than others. Um, but regardless of how talented um, a strap chooser <laughs> your your dealer, auction house, whatever is, uh, you should you should always play with it to try to make it yours and really make the watch sing as much as possible. It's just fun. It's it's a it's a new way to interact with uh, with the watch. And different watches can take on very different personalities according to which strap or bracelet you have it on. And I'll take it a step further. I, I usually see people very stuck on the type uh, of strap or bracelet uh, that the watch comes on. So what I mean in saying that is if the watch comes on a bracelet, I, I usually see collectors very hesitant to switch it onto a strap and vice versa. But I find that, you know, that's often the best way to change the personality of a watch. Uh, and it's a lot of fun. 
Uh, I have watches that have come on bracelets that are an absolute joy on straps. And I have watches that have come on straps that are an absolute joy on uh, bracelets. I, I often find that collectors have underinvested in, in straps and bracelets, and they're not cheap. Uh, I mean, relative to the value of the watch, oftentimes, the you know, a, a couple of hundred dollar strap or a couple of thousand dollar uh, bracelet is, is probably a small percentage. But in a way, making those changes kind of gives you a new watch and it's just a fun new way to interact uh, with something in your collection. So um, I can't recommend it enough. I, I don't really know of anyone who just has deep regret from over investing in bracelets or watch or uh, straps. No, I don't either. And it's one of the joys of my life is um, swapping them out. I don't even try and match, but I just try and kind of match the character of the watch and at least say something a little more expressive. But, uh, you know, feel free to do whatever yeah, you want. Yeah, uh, I mean, I've, I've had someone tell me they don't like a watch that I have for sale and I switch the strap and resend a picture and they all, all of a sudden are interested in buying it. <laughs> Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's funny how that works, but that's again something that you develop an, an eye and taste for as you progress uh, in your journey. I will say too, yet yeah, this is a little tip for uh, watch photography, which is if you're taking a photograph of a strap-based watch, you almost always want to either change out the strap or take it off and put it under some heavy books or something and try and flatten it because if you're taking a flat lay of a watch. An aggressively curved strap is not the most aesthetic thing. That's a, that's a very, you know, people who care about watch photography will care about that point. Everyone else won't. Um, but just wanted to say that really quickly as a little bonus. Max? My, fa my favorites are the guys who uh, photograph watches head only. Yeah, well, okay, here's, I will make a point for that. Because I think sometimes if a, if a case has a very beautiful design, taking off a strap or a bracelet will force you to treat the case as an object of architecture rather than a watch. And it makes you pay attention to the details. So I do think there are some watches that stand up to strapless photography really well. But if it's, you know, a cell phone picture because you don't have a strap, that's a different thing. I realized that after I said this, that sometimes you take pictures of watches without <laughs> straps on. But um, I agree with you. I think there are certain watches that warrant it um, and they can they still look great. Um, even without something to fasten the watch to your wrist. But uh, you have to use it sort of as your change-up, right? It can't be your fastball. And what I meant when I, when I brought this up initially was there are certain sellers out there who uh, the primary photo on their website of the watch is always of the watch head only. <laughs> That's always been a head-scratcher to me. Yeah, I mean, I try and I try and like make an analogy so we can understand it without our obvious biases, which is uh, if an art dealer was just like laying out a painting on a floor without a framing, it would look a little bit strange not to bring it back and beat that dead horse. But yeah, or like photographing a car without wheels. Yeah, it is a little bit similar. Uh, that, that's a better one than I used. Absolutely. Oh, anyways, that's a pet peeve that irks me. Max, I, I know you have one that grinds your gears birth your watches. Tell me about it. Yeah. I mean, this has been talked about a lot, right? Like the, I shouldn't be breaking new ground with this topic. Um, I would say I get asked for birth year watches more than I get asked for any one particular watch. Like I get requests for birth year watches more than anyone asks me for like a Submariner or GMT or whatever. And um, my list of reasons why I dislike this practice so much is long. I guess to try to put it as succinctly as possible, it is very rare for someone to be able to look you in the eye with a straight face 
and tell you they know exactly the year in which a watch was manufactured. And that extends to brands that are as well-documented as Rolex. Um, I know a lot of dealers put the exact year uh, of the watches in descriptions, but that is usually an estimation. And so I just find the whole practice to be silly. Um, and I think what it does is it allows sellers to sort of put a target on the back of the buyer because they know that they can put a sort of substandard example of the watch in front of the collector or buyer uh, and the, co the collector or buyer will go for it just because of the year in which they think the watch was made. Another thing that I get often is, uh, well, I don't really care what the serial is. I, I want the date on the paper to you know, be a specific uh, year, uh, which is uh, even sillier, in my opinion, for a very long list of reasons. Firstly, we know that papers are faked uh, all the time. I, I know of a lot of dealers who will sell blank papers. So if I was an unscrupulous seller and I had somebody ask me for a, a watch that had to have a specific year on the papers, I could just buy the blank papers and write it in myself. Uh, that does happen pretty frequently. Um, also, if you get papers that are legitimate with... Um, you know, a date that is legitimate, that date is not the, not necessarily at least, the, the year in which the watch was manufactured. Uh, it's obviously when the watch was sold. And so that's sort of meaningless, right? Like particularly with early uh, Rolexes, but even watches generally, the watches often sat in cases for many years before they were sold. Um, I recall an instance where uh, Eric Wind and I were looking at uh, a vintage Rolex. I can't recall the model, but the serial, it, it came from the original owner or the family of the original owner, and the watch was manufactured according to the serial in 1959, but the date on the papers, I think, was 1967. So the watch sat uh, at the retailer for nearly a decade before it was sold. Now, if you're after a birth year watch, uh, let's just say for discussion's sake that your birth year was uh, 1967. You know, are you really going to feel great about the watch, uh, you know, having a quote birth year of 1967 when, you know, anybody with an internet connection could tell you that the watch was manufactured closer to the late 1950s? It's just sort of meaningless. Can you say what watch that was? I can't. I was saying earlier, I can't recall the model of it. Because that's a very long gap. I've heard of, you know, I've heard of Milgausses staying in for, you know, upwards of, I think the longest I've seen was seven years, but I know they go longer than that. I can't remember what it was. Um, it may have been a date just. That makes sense. But I can't remember specifically. It was a long time ago. Uh, it was a few years ago. Man, uh, there's a lot I could say on this, but to your point, I mean, what, what what does a birth year watch mean? I don't think anyone could really define that. Uh, is it when the movement's manufactured? Often case, that's many years before the case. Is it when the case is made or when the case is stamped with a serial number? Because we know that cases were made and then sat around at Rolex for a while before they were engraved with their serial number and then went into their watch. And then bracelets were maybe added, you know, sometimes up to two years afterwards. Or is it when it was sold? It, it's, it's kind of one of these phrases that is truly ambiguous. And to me, I, I think it comes from a good place but it speaks of a certain naivety to actually just how difficult it is to 
get a great vintage watch uh, and vintage, you know, call it anything broadly speaking pre 90s. People just don't realize how how much they're limiting their available supply in a market where it's already difficult to find a truly amazing watch. They're just making their challenge infinitely more difficult for something that they may not really truly understand. And to your point about case serial numbers, you can obviously, you know, look it up. Uh, and there's a, there's a range for Rolex serial numbers as to when they were produced. Um, how much faith you put into that? It, it, it's a range, right? It, it's not exact. It, it's not your year. You don't know when your watch was from. Um, and I think people tend to just list the year because it's easy to do. It's a data point that you can look up. But selling a watch on the basis of, quote, when it was made is, is already a pretty meaningless phrase. Yeah, it makes no sense, honestly. And uh, it's, it's a great point. I was kind of alluding to it at the beginning uh, of this topic, which is even with Rolex, the serial ranges are exactly that. They are ranges. And in almost every instance, those ranges straddle years. And so at best... At best, you are uh, getting something that is, you know, kind of in a two-year band. Um, so there's not a lot of uh, precision there, uh, and it doesn't really accomplish what the initial goal is. To play devil's advocate, before uh, if you are, say, you were born, you know, in 2010, your options for a birth year watch are a lot more concrete. I think record keeping wasn't. Um, really understood as these weren't really collectible objects back in the day, quote. But today, there are many manufacturers who are keeping airtight records of when even a watch starts and ends production and manufacture of the caliber. Um, and those are usually more high-end watchmakers. But I will say today that the job is a lot tighter. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when people approach me wanting birth year watches for a newborn, uh, you know, so they want something from 20, like, now, basically, then I'm all about it because they, they're easy to find. They're easy to document and understand. And uh, it's, it's a completely different game versus, you know, pre, I don't know, pre-2000-ish. So that's a very different conversation. But I'm very rarely asked for watches like that. It's usually, oh, I need something from 1984 or something like that or 1968. Uh, or something like that. And so with with vintage, like true vintage, it's it's a very, very difficult and arduous exercise. The last thing I want to say on this is really more philosophical, uh, although it does apply to, to birth year watches, is let's say I have, um, or we'll, we'll take it even a step back further. Um, you come to me and you say, hey, I want a birth year watch. Um, I want a Rolex 1016. And my uh, birth year is uh, 1978, just to make up a, a, a situation. I have two Rolex 1016s. I have one with a serial range that uh, straddles 1978. And I have another one that's slightly later. Uh, let's say it's anywhere from 80 to 82. The later example is in significantly better condition. The one that straddles your birth year, the quote unquote 78, uh, is in substantially worse condition. Are you really going to pass up the slightly later, better example for something that you think hits your birth year, uh, but is in worse shape? That is a really fast way to, it's a nice way to put this, put yourself in a bad situation uh, in terms of collecting. 
Um, usually your collection and your finances and your ability to get in and out of watches is, is going to be vastly improved when you buy things that are in sharp condition. So buying a substandard example because you think, oh, maybe there's a chance uh, it was manufactured in, in the year in which I was born. It's usually just a recipe for disaster uh, in terms of collecting. And uh, I've had this happen multiple times where you know somebody opted for a substandard example because they thought maybe it was manufactured uh, in the year they wanted. And it's usually gone pretty badly for that person. So that was my last point there. No, it's well made. I mean, I've heard tell of people um, looking for a birth year watch, a certain dealer catches wind of it, and then they find a watch, say, with a great case with a serial number that covers the year and the range you're looking for, and they know they want good conditions. Then they find a dial in great condition and a movement that fits the case. And it's, um, you know, it, it just speaks to how difficult it is to actually find something original and honest in the condition you want. Birth your watches. Um, I, I do. I really do think it comes from a good place too. I don't think you can assault the character too much because the idea of having a watch that's the same as you is appealing. I totally understand it. Uh, it's just maybe not understanding what watches were like back in however old you are, you know, call it whatever, 1978, is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. And I find like, usually it's people who are crossing over uh, from modern or just new to watches entirely. And I agree with you. It comes from a good place. But I, I think what isn't immediately clear to folks who fall into that category is these aren't modern watches, right? Like we are not one of the guys that you see on Instagram who can pull up a, a modern watch and have it sold to you uh, in two hours, right? Like if I, and th this is something that we can cover maybe later in the discussion, but if I'm ch really chasing a, a model, I would be perfectly comfortable sitting on my hands and waiting for the right, right one to come up for years. Oh yeah. I mean, we can talk about that now. I think the longer you expend you expand that time horizon, the better situation you're going to be in. A lack of patience will cause all kinds of untold mistakes. Yep, I, I agree. And so I, I think that's maybe just a level setting, like very key critical thing to understand with vintage is it's fine to want a specific model, but you are going to be doing yourself a favor if you operate from a place of patience uh, and understand that it's not a 116500LN, I, I can't go find one for you in two seconds if you care at all about condition. So anyways, I, I, maybe that's a good place to move on to the next topic. But um, I, I think the sooner you learn that in your collecting journey, the better off you'll be long term. Absolutely. So kind of the enemy of the Hairspring podcast, number one, is someone who bought a watch at Sotheby's after acquiring wealth. Bought it on the strap, didn't change the strap, and it's his birth year watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know what the watch is. I don't know who the collector is, but I would be willing to wager that if, uh, when and if he ever goes to sell the watch, he is going to be displeased with the result. Yeah, I'd be fairly confident in that statement, too. Um, hopefully that's helpful. I, I, You guys can tell us if you kind of like um, buying advice or not, or if we're droning on about things you already know. I'm sure we'll find out either way. Uh, but hopefully we're going to touch on something you maybe aren't familiar with in our, in our next topic. That's the goal, at least. Um, so this is the fun of having a podcast, which is sometimes your daily life intersects with it in ways you don't understand. I was at Target the other day. Uh, which if you're watching somewhere, does, is Target in Europe? I This is my ignorance. I don't even know. I don't think it is. Target is an American, um, you know, uh, 
retail for less store. And their slogan here is expect more, pay less. And I was thinking there aren't really a lot of watches that cover that. They're really buying new, buying vintage. There aren't many watches where you can expect a lot and pay, quote, less. So that had me thinking, are there any inexpensive watches that really hit like heavyweights? And I'm very, very aware that inexpensive is a relative term and it's a moving goalpost and a very tricky thing to define. But I think it would be fun to kind of have a little chat about some watches that Max and I like that maybe could be said to not be outrageous if they were still sold for double what they're trading hands for today, or maybe are, you know, a third less than something that's uh, just as comparable. So the, the idea here is that we're going to cover a few references that uh, if you're collecting with a little bit of a budget, but you still want something truly exceptional, you might look into. And Max, why don't you take it away? Yeah, but be patient for one to come up to. Don't just go like blindly. <laughs> yeah, and just be sure it's birth year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't don't go like blindly clicking buy on the very first one that you see. Be patient. Um, all right. So this first one uh, is. I'll give you a specific watch, but it it really is more of a category. the The category is jail. I forgot we were doing the f- full pronunciation. Jeje Lecoultre uh, chronographs. Um, yes, that's obviously a pretty big category. Uh, many of their chronographs are not bargains, um, I, I guess is a good way to put it. The reference that I had in mind is E2644, um, but there are many others in, in this category, particularly within the 34 and a half to 36 millimeter case diameter that I think punch well above their weight. Um, there are, I believe, two different executions of this reference, the E2644, one of which I like, um, the other I, I don't really particularly care for. The one that I like is mono- monochrome. It's uh, black on black, and it's, in a lot of ways, a very traditional-looking uh, chronograph. It has you know, three sub-dials. It has fairly narrow uh, hour markers uh, that are just batons. Um, it has loom plots between the hour markers and the inner tachometer uh, bezel. They're just dots. Uh, it has a beautifully beveled case. It has standard just mushroom-shaped uh, pump pushers uh, and a beautifully faceted uh, crown. They're great watches. Um, they contained, excuse me, Valjoux 72s. So, you know, f- for anybody keeping score out there, it's hard to do better um, for quote-unquote bargain vintage chronographs in terms of movement. Uh, And they just wear great on the wrist. I I think they're perfectly proportioned and the dials are very attractive. Yeah, that's a lot of watch at that price point. There's no question. I was actually going to bring up an earlier reference of this series. Uh, So I think if we've both got it on our short list, that definitely underscores just how strong of a buy it is today. The one that I was looking at was an E335. And they're, they're, for both of these, these are early enough in Gégé Le Cult history uh, that there are uh, wide variations of dials and handsets and even sometimes different cases in the same reference. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's true of the E2644. Uh, I, I, believe, I think I'm totally right in saying this, that there's one of yours, Max, that has a blue Fumé dial, which is particularly cool to me. Um, and then in the one that I was talking about, the E335, uh, I think the most collected is probably there's a black dial with a tachymeter scale on the outer track. And then there are a bunch of different handsets in each of these too. Uh, but that's part of the fun of collecting these is that there's not a lot known and there are a ton of variations. So you can kind of find something that 
fits your taste a little bit more. Yeah. Um, the blue fume is the other execution that I don't particularly care for, but, uh, oh, interesting. Why don't you like it? I don't know. I, I just think it looks kind of corny and I, I think the design language is a little all over the place. Like the chronoseconds. That's hit. precisely why I love it. It's so quirky in seventies or sixties or what late sixties, probably. It, yeah. I mean, it on paper, it is cool. Um, I've never handled one. I just think that it looks a little too like retro seventies to me. Okay, here's a question. No, 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 here's a question. When you go on holiday somewhere, are you the kind of person that orders your favorite drink no matter where you go, or do you try the local drink, whatever it is? So I usually try the local drink. Okay. See, for me, this is why I like the blue Fumai Dao. Because if I'm if I'm looking for a watch that's late sixties, I want the ultimate in late sixties aesthetic. A lot of the time. Granted, I, I see the appeal of a black dial and timeless and all of that. But if we're just talking for fun. I think if I want something fun, then there are competing offerings from other brands that strike me as being cooler <laughs> and better executed. Okay. Um, okay. The Blue Fume is uh, pretty interesting. It reminds me a lot of uh, Rolex's vignette dials. Mm. Uh, and it's, so it's very out of character to see it on a look cool to uh, watch. But... Um, I don't know. The execution to me is just there. I just find the hands to be a little wonky and the hour markers I think are interesting. I can't really think of another watch that has them. Um, if you're, well, I mean, everybody's listening, nobody's viewing. So the, the hour markers almost look like screws um, with blue in the middle of them, which, which is kind of cool. I've not really seen that with other watches, but uh, it's just, it, it's a little too loud for me. I, I think there are other cool sort of exotic watches that are executed uh, a bit better. Um, but anyways. Yep. I understand your criticisms. It's a fair point. Um, I, I do. I, I like kind of the black on black of the 2644. And, you know, I like the E355 quite a bit as well. And I think with, with, I think with the E355 too, there's also two. So you highlighted the black, right? But then there's also the white dial with kind of the old typewriter font uh, numerals. Then it has the uh, alpha hands. Yeah, almost a little bit Patek adjacent. Yeah. Um, some UG stuff is a similar, is kind of in that category as well. But yeah, the, they're great watches. And um, to, to, to just put like a dollar figure on it, I mean, both the reference that I mentioned, the E2644 uh, and the E335 that Eric mentioned, you can get for well under 10K in great shape. I'd go further. I could say probably, you know, broadly speaking, around or under 7K for either of those. I think you could still swing it. Um, the more desirable dials will be more expensive. But as an entry point to that reference, uh, it's one to watch out for. There, it, it really is a, a fantastic watch that not a lot of people are paying attention to. And uh, even though you're not going to find one on a bracelet, get your own and throw it on there because the watch is equally as good on a bracelet uh, versus a strap. Absolutely. If you can swing a vintage gay frere or, I mean, Forstner do some really fantastic uh, beads of rice that uh, would fit that aesthetic well today. Definitely. Okay, I've got, uh, you've already taken one of my picks off the list, but I've got ample uh, ammo to work with here. I, I wanted to give a shout out to the Girard Perigo uh, after having slated them in the first episode. <laughs> the Girard Perigo 5368 Triple Calendar. And there are a few other references um, that this goes by too. Uh, you'll also find a comparable thing under 6083. And this is, not a lot of people are paying attention, so these references kind of cross over. And I'm sure that there are other references this falls under too, but this is a 1960s Gerard Perigo 
complicated with often blued steel hands, a white or silver dial, beautiful breguet numerals that are either applied or luminous. Um, it's around 35 millimeters, I think. And it's one of these watches that is so elegant and complicated and just no one is paying attention. I don't know if this is still the case. To be frank, I haven't checked in with this market for a little bit, but at least two years ago, you could pick these up all day for five to 6K. And I wanna say that's still the case. They might be a little more now, but um, I, I, I'm quite confident saying these probably are more than 10K now. And it's a very, very beautiful watch. You know, if you're comparing this to a pad alone, you're getting that same aesthetic, a couple millimeters smaller um, and with Breguet numerals as well. It's an extremely classic watch. Uh, it, it is difficult to find in good condition, I will say, uh, because any triple calendar has uh, pushers in the case side, multiple openings in the case that can often lead to moisture entering the case and some form of dial damage later down the road. That's a problem um, with a lot of the Rolex complicated watches as well from this era. But if you can find one in great condition with a sharp case, because this case does have uh, beautiful bevels on it, it's a very cool thing. I'm not familiar with that watch at all, but I definitely buy that uh, vintage GP punches well above its weight. I have one. Uh, it's a three register chronograph that was my grandfather's. Um, I, I haven't really dove much into vintage GP. I think you, it would be it's definitely harder to find one that's over 10K than <laughs> under. So I, I think just as a category, it's a good brand to look at. You do your family lineage a disservice if you've been gifted a vintage Gerard Perigo, not to look into it more. I'm disappointed in you, Max. <laughs> I've looked into the watch. I haven't looked much into uh, the brand generally. <laughs> All right. What else you got? Uh, so my next one is a watch that I've come to be associated with a little bit over the last few years since I wrote about it for uh, when Tony was doing Rescapement. But uh, it's a Seawolf from Zodiac, specifically the reference 722-946. Uh, so this is the exotic dial variation. So I've... Bought and sold a couple. Uh, I own one. You know, I think really top condition examples can be had for under four thousand, uh, and it's just a, a beautifully vintage nineteen seventies piece of nostalgia. Um, if you're not familiar with the watch, it has sort of a gray, light blue, kind of almost a turquoise colored bezel with uh, orange inserts in it to mark the um, dive increments. One of my favorite details about this watch is the automatic text at six o'clock. So there's two different executions um, of the of the watch and the, the way to kind of tell them apart is with how the text is uh, written on the dial. So the one that I favor is the cursive font where it says automatic and then the other execution that's slightly later is what I call a racing font. It's blockier letters, but the, the one that I prefer, the cursive font, sort of matches the automatic text that you see on a lot of divers from Longines in the in the era. Uh, so these are from the 1970s. Again, you can get great ones for under 4K. They're blast wear. The only complaint that I really hear on them is that they wear small, which they do. I mean, it's a diver. It's 36 millimeters. So because of the bezel, it's going to feel closer to 34 on the wrist. But if you're all right with something uh, slightly smaller, I, I think these are uh, an absolute blast to wear. And people always like them. I completely agree. You're, first of all, great article that you wrote. But it's one of the very few like 
vintage divers where every component is colorful. And because of that, it just kind of blasts off the wrist when someone is wearing one. It's one of the most summery watches there is. Uh, and it also has a very involved history, too, in a lot of ways. It was one of the watches that was sold by the U.S. military at um, exchanges at PXs. So because of that, it became kind of one of the go-to watches of uh, SEALs in Vietnam. So it, it really does have a cool history as well. And attached to that, I'll say um, one of the picks I wanted to put forth as well was also a watch that was sold at USPXs in Vietnam, which is uh, a Caravelle or Belova Devil Diver. And particularly for me, the Caravelle 666, which is where it gets its, its nickname from, the Devil Diver. Um, this one goes by Sea Hunter. And you'll find these Caravelles that have an almost explorer-like dial with a ghosted bezel. It almost looks like an Explorer Dial 5513 except for it's slightly smaller and about 2K instead of 200K. Uh, it's really a fun watch. Um, and these come up, you know, with surprising alacrity. So both the Seawolf and the Caravelle are great dive options if you just kind of want something fun to bang around in in summer. Yeah, I think you can get good. The Caravelle, I think you can get even for closer to a thousand bucks. I really like that watch a lot. It's got a nice beefy crown on it. The bezel's really attractive. I like that it has hashes throughout. And I think the the font of the 369 and 12 is really nice. It's definitely a long lost cousin to the 1016. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, I think the Seawolf's a very cool watch. You took my, uh, my vintage chronograph pick. Um, I'm tempted to go with the Zodiac Hermeticron, I think it was called, or Cron Hermetic or something like that, which is a value of 72. That's huge value. But I'm not going to do that. Um, I think that's too predictable. There's a watch that I want to bring up that's not exactly a value because I'm still talking about a watch that's 10K probably or thereabouts. Uh, but it is a value comparative to a floating cosmograph Daytona. Uh, and Max, you may know where I'm going with this now. But there is a Tudor big block that no one talks about. And the big block is a somewhat divisive watch for the fact that its subdial arrangement is non-standard. But if you like that and you like screw down cases and you don't mind a slightly thicker case, there's an albino dial. Sorry, I got shit in the last episode for saying albino instead of albino. I'm sorry. I don't know if this is a Midwest thing. I don't know if I'm secretly English. I have no idea where this comes from, but I say albino. It comes naturally to me. Uh, there's an albino dial, uh, 79160 big block that has a white dial with silver subs. And people, because people want to extract value, will also sometimes claim that the white dial with black subs is an albino. It's not. And then people will sometimes claim that a silver dial with white subs is albino, which it is also not. In the strict technical definition, the white dial with silver subs is the albino dial. And what's amazing about this is Rolex at the time had a very specific style of white dial construction where there was a layer of lacquer with the text placed on top of it, which meant that the text had a little shadow and there was a depth to the top layer that made it look glossy, like there was a porcelain sheen. And in cosmographs in Daytonas, this is extremely collected. So a floating cosmograph Daytona is a very high dollar watch. And I would say it sells on premium, sometimes almost close to double what, what a normal will go for. Uh, but in Tudor, this exists and it hasn't really caught on it. It's an Explorer 2s too, by the way. Uh, but there's a, there's a Tudor big block with an albino dial reference 79160 that I think deserves a lot more attention because it's a cool thing that not a lot of people are paying attention to. It's a great watch. I mean, I think people's beef with it is that it's a little, I mean, it's literally black and white. And so it looks very kind of buttoned up and I don't really think it offers like 
the playfulness that I think a lot of people it like it looks very stern, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it, it's a wonderful like the quality of the watch is spectacular. I, I find it to be very attractive, and it's difficult to overstate how hard they are to find. So the fact that they're available for less than ten thousand is uh, shocking to me. I think vintage Tudor chronographs generally don't get the love that they deserve much in the way that Speedmasters, I I think, have fallen out of favor. So, yeah, I mean, if you're interested in vintage chronographs and you're ever offered one of these and the price is sensible, I I think it's almost an auto buy. Yeah, it's a great place to start. You know, if you're newer to the space and maybe don't fully appreciate this watch, like if it was on your wrist, you could walk into any room filled with the most seasoned of collectors, buyers, sellers, dealers whatever and everyone would respect this watch like it's just really really hard to argue with and i'd be willing to bet that many of them don't even know that this is the porcelain dial construction that's so collected in daytona's because no one talks about it in the big block yeah it's it's true i you know i I always struggle with that dynamic right because part of that is because of how infrequently they come up so the the education's not really there right um absolutely but you know i think that adds to the mystique and makes it even cooler and more attractive. Mm-hmm. You got another one on the list or are we running low on fumes? I have two others. Oh, okay. Buckle up. Both sports watches. And actually the first that I have is eerily similar in terms of the thesis to what you just laid out for the big block, which is just a 16.570 from Rolex. <laughs> you know, you can find... It's sort of similar to a Speedmaster in a way where if you type 16.570 into Chrono24, there would be a thousand results. But they're vanishingly thin in terms of number available that are in really, really sharp condition. And it's just a wonderful watch to wear. They fit perfectly on the wrist. The dials are extremely attractive. I happen to love steel bezels. It's it's not for everybody. I know some people prefer acrylic or ceramic or whatever, but I, I like steel bezels a lot. Um, and it's very functional. Um, you know, that watch can take a beating. You can travel with it. Uh, so to have a complicated steel Rolex uh, in great condition for, uh, you know, I would say maybe it's right at 10K, but, you know, you could still get a really strong one, particularly with a black dial for less than 10K. I think that's a watch that punches well above its weight. And I think the way people view it gets diminished a bit because of how many there are for sale at a given time. But if you're really focused on condition and actually take the time to find uh, what I would consider to be like a truly good one, then I think it's a very special watch. This, uh, first of all, wholeheartedly agree. The whole era of Rolex where they were transitioning to what I would call modern construction, where here the 16570 covers the change off from a matte dial with tritium plots to a dial with white gold surrounds, uh, what the Italians would call Biccarini. And that is... In the glossy, glossy dial, yeah. Exactly. And that that's a very significant... Um, st- I mean, granted, look, we're talking about minute details of Rolex, but in that world, it's a very significant change. And um, transitional references, I think, are always some of the more interesting, especially in Rolex. Yeah, of, of course they are. Um, and I tend to lean towards the slightly earlier stuff pre- uh, white gold surrounds, but um, what's nice with the 16570 is uh, the surrounds. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm almost certain are not white gold. They're they're black um, on the at least on the polar model, the white dial model. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's 
pretty cool. Um, and the, the cases just, they still have that thinner profile before they move to six digits. So um, it, it's a wonderful watch to wear. It fits virtually every wrist. And but <laughs> this is funny. I, I know I, we kind of mentioned it with the JLC chronographs, but um, every watch that we've highlighted so far, I would argue is equally as good on a strap versus a bracelet. Yeah. And the 16570 is no exception. Like you could throw that on a NATO and it would be golden. Easily. I think that case lends itself uh, I think a lot of people don't realize from the four digit era, the 1675 case isn't identical to a 5513. It's slightly thinner. And, and the GMT master always just hugs the wrist uh, a little bit closer. I think, I think that suits it well. Mm -hmm. Okay. I've got a watch that I'm going to get roasted for. I'm about to call a 30 K watch a value. <laughs> Say you don't have 1.3 million to spend on a simplicity, right? You, you lost the independent market. Well, maybe it's 500K now today. I don't even know. But um, say you missed the simplicity market entirely. Max, you're going to know right where I'm going with this, and some of our listeners will as well. What do you do? There is a watch that comes so close to capturing that flavor, and in some ways is even more interesting. And it's the Chopar LUC 161860. I fucking love this thing. And I don't think it gets anywhere near the attention that it deserves for just how beautiful, classic, innovative it was. This was um, a blank check given to Parmigiani at a young age when he was at his brightest to make what was supposed to be the most beautiful time-only movement ever. And I think he really succeeded. In his era, I don't think you could say there's a more beautiful time. It's a micro rotor. It's finely finished um, and its architecture is beautiful. It has a dial by Metalum with a hand guilloche. And then it's in this very classic, wide, broad, bezeled, polished case in whatever precious metal you choose. It's at 36.5 mil. Um, production numbers were considerably lower than even what people speculate. Um, the idea was to have, uh, I, th I think it was 1860 in each metal was what Chopar were originally going for to match the reference. And I, I'm pretty sure in saying uh, most people estimate it's fewer than 300 of each metal. Um, so it is a relatively scarce watch as well. And it's just so beautiful. I don't think this gets the attention it deserves. I don't know, Max, if this falls into your love or hate pile, but for me, it's hard love. So I agree with the pick. Uh, I do love them. Uh, I think that it punches well above its weight. Quick note, I have slightly different production numbers, but, you know, all of this is rumor, so... It's all speculation anyway. Take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, so I'll offer what I've heard, but who knows who's really right. So I always understood that it was a limited edition of 100 examples. So 100 were supposed to be made, but in actuality, far fewer were produced. So what I've seen is that in reality, there are a few dozen um, at least in yellow gold uh, with the black dial. But anyways, I, I just I wanted to throw that out there. I mean, yeah, the watch is amazing. My only gripe with it is the date window at six. The hour markers on this watch are so beautiful. Uh, they're sort of um, arrowhead shaped, and at twelve there are uh, two and uh, that there are two that are side by side. So having the date at six sort of just robs you of, of another beautiful hour marker. Um, and then I could also do without the auto the automatic text uh, in the second subdial. But aside from those two fairly minor gripes, I, I think the watch is close to flawless. And, you know, I, I have been watching these as I was trying to sell one at one point a couple of months ago. And, uh, you know, I, I know that 
some have sort of scoffed at that 30k price uh and i think that in reality you could probably find one for a good bit less like i think probably closer to 25 or 24 mm. so yeah i mean it's it's a it's a wonderful watch uh, that doesn't get the love it deserves uh because it's a bit of an oddity and then also i i still think a good portion of the market still needs to understand where Chopard sits uh, in in the market. We had a episode, I think it was episode three of watches that have most fallen from grace in their current iteration. First, this, the, the Chopard LUC mm-hmm. 1860 may be the one counterexample, and maybe we sh- this might be a future topic idea of counterexamples to that, but I think the uh, the watch that came out last year at Watches and Wonders in steel with a salmon dial, if you like salmon, actually improved on the flavor because it got rid of the date window at six. It made very few other changes. I think they understood that what they had was a perfect recipe and they respected the original chef, Parmigiani, enough not to change it. The watch is effectively unaltered in caliber and in dial. And the only difference is that the date is gone. And for me, it's a total success because of that. That watch is in white gold. It's in steel. Steel. Yeah, to me, it's a watch that should be in precious metal. I, I do think it's attractive in the configuration that it was released in last year. But it it's a dress watch to me. Uh, and so it's better suited in precious metal. Um, and I'm not saying it doesn't work because I do like it. But to me, if you're kind of thinking about the best execution, I do think yellow platinum even rose would be better than steel. I I take your point. Uh, I'd say give it a year. You'll probably have your wish. I hope so. Fingers crossed. The last one that I had on my list is uh, Hoyer Camaro, specifically the reference 7220. Again, these are just wonderful vintage chronographs that can be had for sub 10K. Uh, A lot of them have brown dials, which a lot of people mistake for being tropical dials, but they are not. Um, They are... They were manufactured that way, but they still look wonderful and kind of give off the appearance of of being aged. People get thrown off with these because the lugs are thin and because the shape of the case is a bit funny. They're they're a little square, not square in the way that a Monaco is. Um, The edges are a bit more rounded, but I, I think people just see them and automatically think, oh, that's not for me. But the cases are beautifully proportioned. They're 38 millimeters, and just with the shape of it plus the the narrow profile of the lugs that just kind of works on almost any wrist. And this kind of feeds into the first thing we talked about, which is, you know, try things on and figure out what works on your wrist. I've had these on the wrists of countless uh, people who have been astonished at how much they've enjoyed them uh, because they were very dismissive when just looking at photos. So um, I, I think these are great value buys, much in the way that a lot of vintage Hoyer chronographs are, but the Camaro, I think, probably gets the least love of all the models. I fucking love the Camaro. I think I think it's one of the greatest values. I fully support that pick. I've always... So, to my understanding, the history of the watch is that um, Jack Hoyer wanted to break more into the U.S. market and so ch- chose a name that Americans would like and an association that Americans would like and named it, uh, to my understanding, directly after the Chevy Camaro. And I've always wondered how he was able to do that with IP, if it just wasn't protected in different spaces other than the car. Um, but either way, it's it's a kind of beside the point. It's a fantastic value. Uh, and, and I think a very attractive chronograph that I, people people in Hoyer tend to kind of jump straight to the Carrera or the Ottavia or Ottavia. Camaro, I think, is, is kind of uh, 
an, an underrepresented pick and, and a fantastic, uh, a fantastic pick. Yeah, I totally support it. Yeah, I've uh, I've heard similar things with the Carreras. Like, how did he get away with naming the watch after the car? Um, which it technically wasn't named after the car, but that's kind of a different conversation. <laughs> well, I think the car and the watch were both named after the race, the Carrera Pan America. Ex exactly, but there was. I don't want to call it a handshake agreement because I don't know that Jack ever like met with <laughs> Porsche, but, but there was sort of this, this gentleman's agreement. Like you're great at making what you make. I'm great at making what I make. We can coexist. The, the, like our, the drivers of our cars really love your watches. The, the wearers of our watches really love your cars. Like it, it just, it was, it was um, kind of the, the two were additive to each other. Uh, and I think both brands really appreciate that, appreciated that. There's also a lot of great other great anecdotes with uh, him sort of making marketing plays to enter into the American space. I think the Camaro is probably the best example of that. But he also allowed racing teams and large auto dealers to print their names uh, on the dial, and that was kind of a way to you know sort of get Americans more interested in into the brand with the ability to quote-unquote, customize the watches, and that was massively successful. We see a lot of uh, double-signed Hoyers come out over the years, and um, some with the names of car dealers and, and things. It's, it's a lot of fun. Great piece of, of Americana. If you really want to chase rare birds with uh, motoring associations, uh, double-signed Hoyer dials are are pretty much your your bread and butter. Like Things like the Shelby Daytona, or sorry, <laughs> Shelby Cobra Carrera. Um, there's even a road and track Carrera. I think I'm right in saying there, there are a bunch of the Volvo Carreras. If you want something a bit more sensible, I mean, there, there's really no shortage, um, but the MGs are great. Yeah. It, and it's just like to speak a little bit more on the design, like it just works so well that the case is gorgeous. It's got the radial uh, brushing uh, on the outside of the case. And then the pushers are kind of have like a, um, almost like a screwdriver, feel to them um, they they sort of have grooves carved out and you don't really see them replicated uh, on any other watch which I appreciate a lot and the dials are, are just very attractive and uh, they just work yeah it's a very self-aware design to me it's not trying to be timeless it's having fun it's it's a it's a solid thought out chronograph um, but it, it's not you know it's not trying too hard it's just trying to be what it is um. We, we, I think we've droned on enough about the Camaro. We both love them. You have any more picks or, sh or should we uh, close this one out? No, it's, we can do the uh, only wrist. Okay. Uh, this only wrist comes to us from Germany, from a handle that I'm going to struggle with. I believe it's pronounced Leicht und Kross, um, L-E-I-C-H-T-U-N-D-K-R-O-S-S. -S. And, and it is this. Uh, adapted, but it is this. Uh, you are a late 30s engineer working at Porsche in Stuttgart, born and raised in the area. But this isn't about you. Your father, who is even more fit than you are, will be turning 60 this year. You want to celebrate this milestone with a watch, but also a memorable experience for the pair of you while he's still strong and capable. He spends his winters at a holiday home in New Zealand and is the football playing, kite surfing, hiking, surfing type. The watch needs to stand up to all of this. Vintage is welcome, but it can't be babied. It has to handle it. He's always worn fitness trackers. This is your opportunity to make a watch meaningful and move him away from quartz computers. So the challenge is this. You have 15K, 
I'm assuming USD, I don't know, it could be Euro, but I'm gonna say USD, in total to purchase both a holiday experience and a watch to give at the end of it. Meaning the more spectacular you make the holiday, the less valuable the watch has to be and vice versa. He'll be game for staying in hostels and roughing it, so you have total freedom to spend as you see fit. But you have 15K for flights, hotels, the experience, and the watch. And one other thing, he hates subs because they remind him of his 30s in finance. VL Glück, which I think is good luck in German. Great prompt. Max, what do you think? It is a good prompt. Uh, I like that we kind of had to balance the price of the watch against um, an experience. Uh, so I, my pick was uh, very specific, almost annoyingly so. Uh, it's an oddball for sure, but I think in my head at least it would fit the character of uh, the father quite well. So I chose a Favre Luba Bathy 160. Um, so I'm almost 100% certain nobody has any idea what I'm talking about, but uh, Favre Luba was a was a French brand that made a lot of sports and, and sort of tool watches back in the 1960s and 1970s before the quartz crisis eventually got it. But a lot of their designs were uh, very loud, elaborate, uh, sporty, and fun. And the Bathy 160 is one of the cooler models because it incorporated a depth gauge into the watch itself. So there is a hand uh, on the dial that is uh, sort of committed to a uh, depth scale that is also uh, on the dial itself. Um, and so as you would dive with the watch, the hand would sort of move along with your depth uh, so you could uh, track it in an analog way. And I just think that is very, very cool. And so to go along and pair with this watch, uh, the vacation that I chose from for them was um, scuba diving off of the Baja coast in Mexico. How much is the scuba diving trip? So, you know, it's not a super liquid watch. It's not one that's easy to go pull comps for. I feel pretty confident in saying that you could pick one up in the upper four digits. Uh, like I think somewhere between six and 7,000, maybe slightly less would be reasonable. Uh, and so I think that leaves you with a good chunk to to get out and dive. I support that. Uh, I think Favre Luba, or I, I always say it incorrectly because it's it's one of those names that you read a lot on the internet and you never hear anyone pronounce. I believe it's Favre Loiba, but uh, they have so many just totally outlandish dive designs uh, from the area and even like weird complications like um, altimeters and, and, and things that you just don't expect. They were a very 70s creative um, watchmaking driven brand in a way that few are today. Uh, so I, I think that's a really fun pick and it suits the character well. It would be a struggle, I think, to find one in condition where you could dive with it in the ocean every day, but I think it's possible. Yeah, just change the gaskets. And I also... I'm thinking now more about it. I, I think I it might have been a faux pas when I said that it was a French company. It is a Swiss company. I'm not. I'm not sure why I said French, but um, I think it's a French name, but a Swiss company. Swiss company. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and so yeah, it's just a lot. It's super oddball stuff. You just really don't see it around. But when they do come up in nice shape, uh, your eye is almost certain to be drawn to it because. Uh, it is just uh, the, their designs are just so way out of left. A um, lot of fun, vibrant colors, and they're just great, great watches for the money. Yeah, I think that fits a guy who's a German holidaying in Australia who hates finance. That totally tracks. Well done. Yeah, I, th I, th I think so. There's not a lot of pretension <laughs> with a watch like that. No, no, there's a lot of depth, too. Um, 
I took it. I. I took it a very similar direction, kind of an annoyingly similar direction. Uh, my, my initial want with this was to say, you know, fuck it, go be homeless in Bucharest for a week, but I'm going to get a 15K watch if it's the last thing I do. <laughs> but that doesn't really make a lot of sense for this guy because he obviously has money and it, he doesn't really care, it seems like, for for material treasures so much. So I, I put more effort, I think, into the experience side, uh, but you can tell me uh, if I'm wrong when you see the watch. I... I found this thing called Kayak the Nile, <laughs> which seems like a great way to die. But I want them both to have, I, th I think particularly father and son kind of bond through a little bit of pain and suffering. I think there needs to be some hardship involved for the bond to grow deeper. And this is um, a two-week-long kayaking course in Uganda where you do white water on the Nile and hope you don't get eaten by a crocodile, I'm guessing. Or is it a gator? I always get those mixed up. But it, so I want them to go on this trip together. And at the end of it, I want to gift him what is going to be the world's best example, because I can have that trip, I think, I hope, uh, for about six to seven K. And that's counting flights from Germany to Uganda, which aren't actually as expensive as I thought they would be. Um, so I'm, I'm spending six to seven K on that trip. And then I'm going to spend the remainder finding the world's best example of the Enikar Sherpa Jet 33. If you don't know, this is the COSC certified Sherpa Jet that almost never comes up for sale. Um, usually they have a white dial with a, a black kind of roulette GMT or sorry, 24 hour bezel on the outside. But this is this is just an extremely fun watch that doesn't take itself too seriously. Um, it has uh, the complete uh, water resistance that the entire Sea uh, Pearl line did in Anacar. And I know it's a Ma it's a watch that's close to your heart, Max, but for me, it's just one of the more playful 60s designs. The size is just right for someone with an average wrist. And it's also a watch that not many people are paying attention to. No one's gonna know that you have this if you're traveling around the world. You don't have to worry about it in airports or in Paris. Um, but you know, you can get the more colorful as well, but I, I, I I just really love the design of this watch and it, it seems like it fits the character to me because if he is German, he's going to be a little more reserved. I'm going, you know, for the black and white. We really shortchanged Anagar by not bringing them up in the prior segment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I feel pretty badly about that because I love, I love this watch. As you were kind of alluding to, I own one in my personal collection, although it's not a 33. Um, it's just the standard Sherpa Jet. But um, I think this is an awesome pick. I, I think anyone who spends a lot of time outside and sort of has a sporty side to them would appreciate this watch because it's just got great design features to it. It's dual crown, it has beautifully beveled edges on the lugs. It has the uh, Saturn logo. The fonts of both the brand and the model are, are very, very fun. I've said in the past that the way that they've scripted out Sherpa kind of looks like um, a font that was used on some vintage muscle cars back in the 1970s, which I think is uh, a really nice touch. I love these watches. They, they punch well above their weight. And I, I think somebody who wants something great and fun and you know doesn't want uh, the fuss and attention that would come with, say, a Rolex uh, would absolutely love this watch. Cool. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, and I, th I think I think you could probably engrave it around the C Pearl logo on the back if you so chose. That'd be fun. The C Pearl is one of the better K 
case back engravings. So I, I would be hesitant to mess with that. But um, no, not across it, but just around if it. If you wanted to go around it, yeah, for sure. It's just such a great watch. Like screw back case, sick logo on the back. Like the Saturn logo is so cool. For some reason, they felt like they needed to incorporate a GMT into a dive watch. Who knows why? Like one of my Instagram captions of it is uh, like for, for when you need to go diving and know what time it is in Timbuktu. Like it just <laughs> kind of makes no sense, but it's just fun and quirky and sporty and is, is just like a great watch to wear. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Big fan of perpetual calendar divers. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's a, that's an awesome pick. I, I, I think the uh, uh, kayaking trip sounds like a blast too. I would sign up for that in, a, in an instant. Yeah. And if he dies, you know, you get to keep the watch for yourself. Win-win. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. I think that about wraps up. Uh, this is six, I think, now. I think we've yeah. got six of these things. We will We will see you guys back here next week for uh, episode seven. Thank you guys so much for listening. We're having a blast doing these. Can't wait. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.